Welcome to the Emerging Revolutionary War podcast. Emerging Revolutionary War is a public history platform that explores all aspects of the Revolutionary War with up-and-coming historians and connects this history to the places where it occurred. We strive to make it fun and engaging for all audiences. We have a blog and website, emergingrevolutionarywar.org, where you can check out frequent blog posts and history articles by numerous historians. In addition to our blog, we are active on social media. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. We host an annual symposium that takes place in Alexandria, Virginia, and we now also host Battlefield Bus Tours. We also have the Emerging Revolutionary War book series, published by Savas Beattie. To date, we have four titles out and more on the way. These books offer a brief, readable, and illustrated narrative and include self-guided tours of the battlefields. So far, we have books on Lexington and Concord, Trent and Princeton, Monmouth, and Valley Forge. Check them out wherever books are sold. We always offer speakers that can talk about a range of Revolutionary War topics, and our historians have been featured in places such as C-SPAN, American History TV, and Fox Nation documentaries. Make Emerging Revolutionary War your home for the 250th anniversary of America's independence. This show is filmed live every other week on our Facebook page, so if you'd like to watch these live and have an opportunity to engage with us, check us out every other Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern on our Facebook page. Enjoy the podcast. Good evening, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Emerging Revolution War Roundtable uh, with uh, Emerging Revolutionary War. Uh, tonight's Rev War Revelry takes uh, a trip back a little farther than the Revolutionary War, back to the First World War, or the start of um, the Revolutionary Movement with the French and Indian War, specifically talking about Western Pennsylvania, the emergence of George Washington. Um, so we thank you for joining us tonight um, here with our Rev War Revelry. Uh, we will still have a great uh, list of historians with us. Um, on my top left is uh, John Miller, who is the Operations Director of Monterey Pass, um, and also the Executive Director of the Shippensburg Historical Society. Uh, Billy Griffith, uh, Emerging Rev War Historian, the author of the soon-to-be-released Monmouth Courthouse, and also a uh, book on Lake George, uh, done by History Press a few years ago. And a gentleman from... Uh, I guess Western Pennsylvania is the best way to put it. You might have seen him recently marching around Drury's Bluff for Richmond National Battle so far. That is Bert uh, Dunkley. And we also hopefully will be joined by Dr. Walt Powell, the president of the Braddock Road Preservation Association. He is um, having some technical difficulties, so you may see him pop in and off on the screen. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining us here tonight. Um, we look forward to a great discussion uh, on uh, this a very important time frame, kind of the start of the Revolutionary War era in um, the, you know, what would be the United States. So with that, um, where do we kick off? I guess, why are we focused on Western Pennsylvania? Why do two big European empires, the French and the British, care about what's happening in the middle of the wilderness in North America? So uh, who wants to take it? I was going to say, for me, when I look at the, uh, the wilderness and why it was important, um, you got to look at where modern day Pittsburgh sits and that was called the Forks of the Ohio. It's where the, the Monongahela River um, and then the Allegheny come down, they form the Ohio. And then from there, the Ohio flows directly to uh, the Mississippi. So ultimately, whoever controlled those forks would ultimately control um, a continent. 
And I think that was just as important for Britain or England at the time, um, just as well as France. And it was just a race to see who could basically get there. So uh, anybody want to add that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, I got my audio straightened out, so sorry for the con you know, confusion there. Uh, of course, this is often called by historians our first global conflict, and we have to look at it not just in the context of France and England, more broadly, of course, Native America. And uh, so the, the conflict in Western Pennsylvania is just the, uh, you know, the point at which all of this is ignited. Uh, and uh, the tensions that have been developing over a very long time in our colonial period, of course, uh, reflected in several prior conflicts, which we broadly call the French and Indian Wars, but that says as much about our Anglo-centric view uh, as it does about the reality of those conflicts. So uh, much, much to be said. Well, it's uh, the tip of the spear, it's the confluence point. So um, who get, who, who's this at first? Is Native Americans, the French? I mean, we have this guy named George Washington that's marching through the area. Um, we talked about the French Indian War being 1756 to 1763 or the Seven Years' War. Isn't Washington up there a little early? Go ahead. I was going to say, he is, but uh, um, you got to go back a couple of uh, decades prior to the 1750s and look at all the peace treaties that were signed by England and, of course, France, which limit, uh, basically, it kind of limits the French influence over the Native Americans to the point where they become subjects of the royal crown for England. However, they thought it meant as more like the people, not necessarily the lands that they belong, you know, that they live on. And then all of a sudden you have a company being formed in the late 18 or so, sorry, uh, 1740s, the Virginia or the Ohio company. And then land started to be sold right on the eve of 1750. And I think that kind of didn't sit too well with the Native Americans who owned all that land out there in the wilderness. And of course, we know that encompasses most of Ohio and a good chunk of Western Pennsylvania, including a little bit of modern day West Virginia which was the colony of Virginia at the time. In, in one sense, you can, you can, I suppose, try to reduce it to what you just mentioned, the notion of land and who owns that land. Um, as you know, the Iroquois uh, claimed areas that had been previously occupied by the native tribes uh, in Western Pennsylvania or the Ohio country. Uh, both the British and French obviously had overlapping claims to the same area. Um, and the Ignition, of course, is the Virginia Company or Ohio Company's claims and uh, uh, the dispatching of young Major George Washington by Lieutenant Governor Dinwiddie in the fall of 1753 to alert the French that they need to leave lands that they claim, that is the British claim as their own. But really, it's the Ohio Company that claims that land. And it says a lot about what we could say now is the battle between corporations, uh, people, uh, and trade. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, it really is about trade in one sense and uh, disputes over what really amounts to who can make the money and how. I think it's also important to look at the complexity of the, uh, the Native American diplomacy because it's not just all Indians uh, are one side. Uh, the Indians had their own rivalries, their own uh, negotiations that they were undertaking and uh, the Iroquois were 
uh, trying to project power into that area from upstate New York where their homeland was. But the tribes who had moved into the Ohio country, uh, Delaware and Shawnee and, and others were trying to assert their independence from the Iroquois. And that just makes it more complicated when the Europeans come into the scene and try to take over. And of course the Europeans never understand uh, that complexity and they always see things in terms of black and white. Uh, and a lot of our histories do too, but there's a lot going on with the Native Americans that we need to be aware of. That's an excellent point. In fact, looking back just a hundred years prior to this conflict we're talking about, look at the Beaver Wars, the 17th century, so-called, that's the English name for them, in which the Iroquois, uh, you know, see the Susquehannocks as a rival for the developing uh, European trade and, and hence uh, put an end to the Susquehannocks or force them to assimilate. Uh, so yeah, it's, an, it's enormously complicated. And as you hinted, of course, the prior treaties that have been developed uh, push tribal uh, interests further west, and uh, that just exacerbates everything. So uh, we have Native American tribes, we have the French, we have the British. Um, is it time to introduce George Washington uh, again to this mix? Um, he comes tramping up here initially, all the way to like Prescott, Fort LeBeau, as a representative to tell the French nicely to get off English land. Um, obviously, the French don't believe they're on English land, so um, he makes that amazing trek backwards um, through it um, by harsh weather with Christopher Gist, and then he's, what, sent back up again, um, and how does he end up out in southwestern Pennsylvania? Um, I don't know a place that he built a fort called Fort Necessity, so it seems like a specific name for a fort. Um, how necessary is it in southwest Pennsylvania? Well... I know for Washington, when he went to Fort LeBeau to hand deliver an ultimatum, basically telling the French, uh, you're encroaching on lands that's being claimed by the Ohio Company. So while they discussed the letter, Washington actually managed to walk around. Um, he was treated very warmly by the French, but he didn't notice about the amount of canoes that were coming in, almost like the, Brit or the French were going to do a major campaign when it comes spring. And of course, once he gets the uh, memo back from the French and he takes it down to Dimwitty, the, the note basically tells, uh, you know, you got to talk to the governor of uh, New France in Quebec City, which outrages uh, Robert Dimwitty. And then from there, he orders a company of Virginia militia up to the points to build, I forget what the name of the fortification was there, but they were to build a fortification to kind of quickly, you know, claim the land and then at the same time, Washington began preparing for his military expedition, um, ultimately trying to reinforce that fortification that was being built. I think it's with Prince Edward or Prince George Edward. Or Prince George. Prince, yeah. Yep. Uh, well, young Washington is the 18th century example of a dispensable, if we're to use a, a later analogy. Uh, Dinwiddie chooses him for a number of reasons. One, of course, he's connected prominent families and he's on the make a young man hoping to make an impression to give him the rank of major in the Virginia militia if he gets killed on the expedition so be it uh, but he's, he's to deliver a message to a, a, the French via their very uh, seasoned officers and this is something uh, that French colonial scholars of course have talked about when Washington arrives at Fort Le Boeuf what is now uh, Waterford, Pennsylvania in, in November 1753, uh, he delivers the message to a seasoned French officer named 
Saint-Pierre. And uh, Jacques Le Gardeau de Saint-Pierre has been around the block for a long time. He's traveled as far west as the Rocky Mountains. He's been a post commander at a number of French posts scattered throughout much of the Paidano to the upper Ohio country from what is now Michigan and uh, the Dakotas all the way down to Louisiana. And I mention this simply because uh, Washington doesn't really know what he's walking into, but uh, Le Gallo de Saint-Pierre does. He treats him, as you noted earlier, courteously, tries to pull his small native contingent away from him, <laughs> including the half king, uh, and then sends him back to Virginia and Washington delivers the message. Uh, Ultimately, as you noted, he's sent back to the Ohio country in the spring of 1754 to assert Virginia interests, Ohio company interests. And before he makes it to the forks of the Ohio, uh, the French have already descended. They've already gone down the Allegheny River uh, with a thousand men and native allies and forced the small uh, Virginia company fort that's there to surrender and take it over and of course build what comes to be known as Fort Duquesne. Washington at this point, his original job is to go to the forks, but of course he can't do that now. He's badly outnumbered and quickly learns that the French are a pretty sizable force. And so ultimately he's compelled to pull back and uh, he in haste builds what we come to call, what he calls Fort Necessity, a fort built out of necessity. Uh, that, uh, that fort was built after, and I suppose we're going to talk about this, the uh, so-called incident at Jamonville in late May of 1754. Maybe I'll stop at that point for a moment. <laughs> yeah, I could uh, carry on with that. I want to mention really quick is after this expedition to Fort Le Boeuf to try to oust the French um, from the Ohio River Valley, uh, Washington publishes or has his journals from that trek published. And this is really the first time that his name is carried across the Atlantic Ocean because his journal is reproduced uh, in London. So this is really his first rise on uh, that tower of stardom that we can see. And it's also very uh, productive because he kind of people who aren't exposed to what life is like out here in the Western frontier. He's telling them about the Native Americans and he's telling them about all these important waterways. He's telling them about the nature of this French threat to the English here in North America. Um, so getting back to Washington, heading out towards, uh, towards Fort Duquesne, uh, he's encamped at the Great Meadows where um, Fort Necessity will be built. And he catches word that the French, a small party of about 35 men or so are moving towards his position. He doesn't know what their intentions are. Uh, this French party, it's, it's gone down in history as a peace envoy. They're supposed to be asking Washington and his men to leave the Ohio River Valley in the name of King Louis. However, it's essentially, it will be an ultimatum, because if they decline it, what do you think is going to happen? The French are just going to go back to Fort Duquesne and that will be it? No, there's going to be a, an escalation in fighting. Um, so Washington catching word that these men are only about six miles or so outside of his camp. He's going to uh, move out with, I think, about 50 or so uh, Virginians, as well as a handful of Native Americans under the half king, uh, who was a Seneca uh, liaison or chief, and they're going to surround this small party in what's known today as Jumonville Glen. They'll sit atop a high rocky eminence as the French are below and camped, and they're going to open fire. And there's always the argument of who fired the first shots in Washington, and the English will always say it was the French, but no. It, it, was, it was the English who fired the first shot here, 
and uh, of, of this party, they're nearly entirely wiped out. Only a few of them are able to escape. And that French commander, uh, the Ensign de Jumonville, he's actually going to be killed uh, after surrendering by the half king. Story goes, he takes a tomahawk to his head and then scoops out his brains and rubs them on his face. Uh, so really, really, that's the true nature of warfare here in North America. But these will go down as the first shots of the French and Indian War, which two years later will erupt into the Seven Years' War. But this is going to get Washington in trouble because Humanville's brother is going to want uh, to have vengeance on Washington and his men at Fort Necessity. Let someone else talk about that. Well, let me uh, back up just for a minute uh, and talking about Jumonville. Uh, my colleague, David Preston, as you may know, recently discovered and published uh, an unknown account that uh, makes it pretty clear that Washington himself fired the first shot at Jumonville Glen. That's quite a revelation. Uh, and we do know from the limited eyewitness accounts that we have that uh, the half king may indeed have, uh, you know, raised the hatchet and uh, smashed the head of Ensign Joseph Ducoulon de, de Jumonville. Uh, but uh, as, as I'm, I'm sure you know, looking at the scholarly perspective of what happens, it's a very astute diplomatic move. Uh, in fact, even that phrase, when uh, Jumonville is killed, thou art not yet dead, my father, uh, is a reference to the fact that our, you know, diplomatic relations now between us have been severed. And Washington is that young, naive, naive to wilderness warfare and diplomacy caught in the middle. Um, this, of course, escalates. You mentioned Washington's name being internationally known because of the journal, but it's really the quote-unquote uh, murder of Jumonville that catapults his name into French and ultimately British diplomatic circles as a murderer on the frontier, not the kind of reputation that we think of Washington as having uh, in the light of his much later career. But uh, yes, it catapults him to a, a new level of fame, and uh, it says a lot about Louis Coulon de Villiers, who was the French commander who sent after Washington, Jumonville's half-brother, that he didn't kill him. Certainly, he, he had the right to do so. He knew that uh, Washington was responsible for his brother's death. But rather than do that, he uses Washington's defeat at Fort Necessity, uh, the defeat of Washington, and his surrender to extract that famous document in which Washington essentially acknowledges that he assassinated uh, Jumonville. So it's a diplomatic coup for the French. Washington is, in a sense, in a, in a parlor game in this early phase of his growth and development, and remarkably lucky in hindsight uh, that he wasn't killed. Uh, Real quick, keep in mind to Washington at this point, he's 22 years old. He's a kid. Yes. <laughs> you know, we always think of Washington the man. He's a kid. <laughs> and the That's one thing I'd, I'd like to add on to that is that I think Washington learned a very valuable lesson here because not only did he start the first, you know, so-called World War, but he also learned how, because he did have, what was it, a company of uh, provincial soldiers that were with him. And of course, provincial soldiers are British soldiers, basically. I mean, they're entitled to the same um, amenities as a regular British soldier, for an example, but he was that he learned a little bit about how the militia and how provincial sometimes they kind of you know, do a little head button, but then to sign that document, as uh, Dr. Powell stated, that basically, you know, I've heard stories where he did that due to a bad translation because the translator that was on duty had gotten sick. So he had this other guy come in who read that, and when after he signed it, that's when oh my goodness, you know, I'm declared as an assassin. So. 
he learned a valuable lesson within you know, a very short period of time, which, like you said, Billy, it starts his career, but it also kind of spins out of control for a little bit. There's a, there's a big myth that I think is appropriate to correct right now, and that's the myth that, you know, and it's even it was perpetuated, it has been even by the Park Service uh, and one of their waysides, the, quoting Horace Walpole, the famous 18th century British writer and novelist, is saying, you know, this is the spark that ignited a great world war, uh, you know, here on the frontier. There's absolutely no evidence that Walpole ever said any such thing. Uh, his letter, his correspondence never did. It appears to be a, a 19th century uh, phrase coined by Francis Parkman, who's a name I think you all know quite well. So <laughs> the shot fired in the wilderness, it ignited, I'm paraphrasing, a world war. It wasn't something said by Washington's contemporaries anyway. If it doesn't fire that, that shot, I mean, um, for a lot of folks and um, um, probably the least first in the French and the war out of this uh, commemorative great historian, um, how do we get from, okay, July of 1754, July 4th, right, it's when we surrender to Fort Necessity, to 1756? What happens that whole year of 1755 in this French and Indian War, or Seven Years' War building? Well, diplomatically, of course, in Europe, the two nations and their allies are still at peace uh, since the Treaty of Aix-la-Chapelle of 1748. But other events, not unlike modern wars, get, uh, you know, carry forward and uh, things spin out of control. And 1755 is the critical year, of course. The British determined to send troops to North America, two regiments commanded by General Edward Braddock, uh, who was more or less appointed viceroy, if you will, of British forces in North America to launch a major expedition, not only to take Fort Duquesne, uh, the French fort at the Forks of the Ohio, but also to secure uh, the French fort at Niagara, uh, key location, of course, in modern Michigan, uh, and uh, forts further to the north. Uh, so sending troops to North America, even as the French counter, escalates the, the conflict. Uh, and several key actions take place that year. Billy can speak very specifically about one of them, of which he knows a good bit. Uh, and I could perhaps speak more specifically about the Braddock uh, expedition itself, which is arguably the most famous of all those that took place that year. And that ultimately leads to a declaration of war uh, the following year between the warring parties and their allies. I think it's worth pointing out that, um, you know, we talk about the series of French and Indian wars. There's a series of conflicts through the 18th century uh, between Britain and France in North America. And it's just a, a vicious cycle. And there's a peace treaty and then both sides pull back and they get ready for the next war. And I think that by the time we get to the 1750s, uh, 1740s into the 50s, that, that tension is building and everyone kind of knows that there's gonna be another conflict and everyone's getting ready for it. It's just, it, it's not official yet, but uh, the peace is just a break. The peace is a timeout because the next war is gonna come. And I think that's the thinking that everyone had at that time. That's an excellent point. In fact, you know, looking backwards, we can look at this as the hundred years of war between France, Great Britain, and their allies on both sides, uh, both here in North America and, of course, uh, in Europe and around the globe. Uh, as that conflict expanded. 
And here in North America, we talk about, you know, these wars of expansion. Well, for the English colonists who are nestled along the eastern seaboard, they're going to expand which way are they going to go. They can't go east because they're going to run into the Atlantic Ocean. The only way they can go is west. And obviously that's going to put them on a headlong, or headlong collision with the French who are occupying uh, New France, which is up in Canada. It extends all the way down the Mississippi River uh, towards present-day New Orleans in Louisiana. So that's essentially a boundary right there that if the British are going to expand, they got to punch through it. So it's just destined to have uh, open conflict uh, for that contested area. Well, that's a, ver that's a very good point. And of course, uh, ultimately with the so-called Treaty of Paris of 1763, the British ostensibly uh, promised native tribes that they won't allow expansion west of the mountains. That of course is a, an empty promise for many reasons and leads to the conflict that really is the driving force behind this <laughs> emerging revolutionary war group. Uh, as, as you know, but um, I think also it's helpful to keep in mind the uh, uh, broad nature of intertribal rivalries, historic rivalries that pred uh, predated European contact and which are exacerbated by the development and rivalries over the powerful trade uh, with the French, the British and others. Uh, and who controls that trade? So there's that element as well. I mean, that's only part of a bigger story, but it's, if you will, empires within empires. So we have, uh, I mean, a hundred years of war, few timeouts where both sides take a breath and then they come back. And so now you have 1755, this kind of reemergence. And so um, we've got just Edward Braddock um, and let's be honest, I mean, most people, most historians, let me say most historians, most schools when we study is that Edward Braddock basically plays a whole har harmony of music marching through the woods, announced that he's going to fight a European war, that he's going to uh, build this road through the forest. He's got Washington there. He's got um, basically it's a big European type conflict coming, but that's really not what the evidence shows, right? It's Braddock is not this bumbling idiot that's marching around in the, in the woods. Um, that's headed to Fort Duquesne. So since we busted down the myth of who fired first tonight, thanks to Billy, we fired on the myth of Robert Walpole saying the shot that set the world on fire. Let's give some Edward Braddock some love, right? So we need uh, the re-image of Edward Braddock and what happens on this march uh, to the Monongahela or however you pronounce that river. So being a Baltimorean, we don't pronounce stuff out there in West Virginia. Too. <laughs> come on, right? Yen's come from Bonton. Come on. Never really set in to this Baltimore centric guy. So, who wants to start with uh, rehabilitating Bradwood Braddock? Well, uh, again, I, I'm going to take my hat off. I'm not wearing it, but to my colleague David Preston, whose book, recent book, came out just a few years ago now, will probably stand as the definitive work on Braddock and his campaign for a very, very long time. And uh, he, he rightly points out that, uh, thank you, Hope Braddock's defeat. There it is, Battle of the Monongahela. Uh, he, he rightly points out that Braddock, in a sense, did almost everything, almost everything right until a few minutes before a disaster strikes on July 9th, that he has his flankers out. He's done a remarkable job in a very short time of building a military road, which itself is a remarkable feat over very difficult terrain. He's done it with very limited colonial cooperation. Uh, in fact, what's really remarkable is that Benjamin Franklin emerges hugely 
in this expedition is someone who produces wagons along with his son at a time when the colonies are not. Uh, without Franklin's help, it's apparent that the expedition could never have made it as far as it did. Uh, what his biggest failing, although it's not as egregious as some previous scholars had argued, was his failure to pull natives into his orbit, uh, particularly for their value as scouts uh, and to augment his expedition. So it's quite clear, of course, he had very few. But uh, we now know, and we know from new French accounts as well, that um, uh, when the two sides collided uh, along the Monongahela, and that's what it was, a meeting engagement, uh, that initially the French militia, of course, were pushed back. The French commander, Captain Beaujol, was killed in the early volleys by the British advance guard. And chaos ensued, at least briefly. But it was the natives who took over uh, encircling the British forces, and then the proverbial uh, everything that can go wrong does go wrong from the British perspective happens. The advanced force uh, being accordioned against troops coming forward, and uh, much more after that. Uh, so Braddock deserves an enormous amount of credit for getting as far as he does uh, in the relatively short time, despite various obstacles. But of course, in the end, it's ultimately what's the end result? And the end result is his mortally being mortally wounded, uh, hundreds of men killed, others wounded, uh, 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 embarrassing defeat for the British Empire. And that's what people remember. And it's also the, what they remember is the illusion, because it's partly an illusion, that these are the British marching in tight ranks, the stupid British marching in tight ranks being, while everybody else is hiding behind trees. Well, that's not quite, quite accurate, but uh, it's a myth hard to shatter. If you look at the key figures who were on that campaign, um, you have Lieutenant Thomas Gage, who would eventually be the commander in chief of North America, and at least during the start of the American Revolution. And then you have one of my favorites, and Billy, you know this, Major John St. Clair, who's a fiery uh, Scotsman, <laughs> who was given um, the task for transportation as well as building the road. And then you have uh, George Washington, who is now... Um, been commissioned as a staff to Braddock, who is going to go ahead and start forging his name in history. But then on the other side of the coin, you have America's first folk hero, Daniel Boone, who's uh, with the, uh, the wagon trains in the rear of the flying column, as well as I believe Daniel Morgan, who you'll hear a little bit more about during the American Revolution, and of course, Ben Franklin. So to me, you have a lot of really great personalities that are just being formed and a lot of great talent that was on this campaign itself. And cutting a road, I lived up in um, Western Maryland. My family founded it, the area up there and growing up as a child, it's always amazed me. How do you take an army and how do you build a road going through these mountain ranges where some of the mountains are 2000, 3000 plus? It's absolutely extraordinary as to what General Edward Braddock and his army did. But I mean, great point. I'm just saying we always, we now know, we like to look at history at the top down. Like, okay, we know the guy 68 or I-70 cuts through. We know what's over in the next mountain. But I mean, cartography of that time, I mean, is very, very limited. Um, and I know I cut off Dr. Powell there, I apologize, but we have a question that did come in and uh, maybe we can answer this before we move on about Braddock. Uh, it comes from Gabe, and he asks, does anyone know why Braddock didn't use frontier militia the way that Lord Dunmore did 20 years later? 
Well, that's an excellent question. Uh, there is certainly some truth to the fact that, that Braddock uh, didn't hold a frontier militia in high regard. Uh, we know, for example, because of the correspondence between William Franklin, that is Benjamin's son, uh, and others uh, a lot during the Braddock campaign that uh, some of the officers held some of these frontiersmen in a bit of contempt. Uh, obviously, that would be proven very wrong at Monongahela, but that's part of the challenge that Braddock has. Uh, it's, it's, and you can say it's the limitations of his experience uh, not working with provincial units. Uh, it's a mistake, of course, that will be remedied later. I mean, you look at a number of very fine British officers that will indeed appreciate the work of provincial and, and militia forces. But yeah, it's a good question. And uh, I'd like to kind of add on to that saying that uh, during 1755, this isn't just, I know Dr. Powell was mentioning it earlier, there was also a, a thrust to potentially take Fort Niagara on Lake Ontario. Uh, there would also be a, a push up uh, into upstate New York to try to capture Crown Point along Lake Champlain. And then over in Nova Scotia as well, an area known as Acadia, there was a British expedition there to capture two French forts to kind of expel French influence. Uh, from the area, but those three other expeditionary forces relied solely on colonial troops rather than Braddock's, which is he's relying, even though he has Amer or colonials with him, he also has two professional redcoat regiments, the 44th and 48th regiment. So he's going to be using them as their spearhead and relying on them, while in the other expeditionary forces, the colonials, they had to work hand in hand together in order to uh, achieve victory, which they do achieve victory in Nova Scotia and then along the southern shore of Lake George as well. Uh, entirely New England and New York uh, provincial force there under the command of William Johnson will actually throw back a French force commanded by the general in chief of all French regular forces in North America, the Baron de Dieskau. Uh, and this will be really one of the first, you could say American victories in our history because there was only one British regular officer with them during that fight. That's, that's an excellent point. Very, very good point about, about those separate engagements. In fact, as you know, the commander of the expedition against the Acadians was uh, from right here in Plymouth, John Winslow. <laughs> uh, it's a great story behind that. But uh, one other myth I might add, and, and again, Dave Preston and, and some other scholars more recently have shattered it. It's the notion that the British regulars, and this sort of gets back to that provincial and, reg and militia question. Quite a few of the men that were in the 44th and 48th had literally been recruited once the units got here. That's not so well known. They were understrength units come over, that came over from the Irish establishment. So as soon as they arrived in Alexandria, they're actively seeking recruits. And it's fair to say that at least two, perhaps three of every 10 men were men that had been placed into service just a few months before Monongahela. So that, that certainly plays into the bigger story. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me. I think it's important to remember that, um, you know, on paper we look at it and we think, well, these are two uh, British regular regiments with all the training and um, equipment and skill that go with that, but they, they're really not. Um, these were two garrison regiments from Ireland, um, inexperienced uh, peacetime troops, and then they're augmented with men of mediocre quality and, and they don't have time to really train uh, with any good tactics. Uh, maybe it could be argued that if those British units had incorporated some um, ranger type tactics like Robert Rogers will later use, uh, maybe they would have had a better time in the woods, but they didn't get much training at all. 
Yeah, and you could, uh, the second in command of the 44th Regiment of Foot, who's actually leading the vanguard of Braddock's advance against Duquesne uh, on July 9, 1755, like John mentioned, is Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage. And Gage potentially takes these experiences of this disaster, and later in the war, he's going to help recruit and train a regiment of light infantry for the British, among the first in the establishment, to try to adapt to that wilderness-style warfare here in North America. And Brigadier John Forbes in 1758 is going to take all the mistakes that were made, and he's going to basically correct everything from that campaign and re-lead another campaign to take the forks of the Ohio where Fort uh, Duquesne is. And I mean, and Forbes at the time isn't he uh, dying of some type of what stomach cancer or something at the time? Um, I mean, as he's marching, so I mean... Uh, oh, no, he, he died after the campaign was over. Some debate as to what killed him. It may have been a stomach cancer or some other chronic disease. That would have been in March of 1759 in Philadelphia. But he completed the campaign successfully, of course, and uh, was there when uh, Fort Duquesne was blown up on November the 25th, 1758, and uh, occupied and renamed Fort Pitt, ultimately, in honor of uh, uh, William Pitt. Uh, so Forbes, yeah, Forbes, uh, as you just noted a moment ago, uh, does take advantage of what he's learned. Uh, and of course, he also has a much larger force of both provincials and regular units or units uh, recruited uh, and enormous uh, advantages in a sense Braddock did not have. And Washington's there, brigade commander with that force. But we stay on Forbes a little bit. We only have, don't we see some of the, the the bad side of Washington a little bit? Isn't he a little frustrated with Forbes because he doesn't listen to what road to take? Uh, being uh, reinstituting that provincial mindset of to take this road because it helps the company that I'm a part of and all that, not the Pennsylvania one. So um, for the two uh, Braddock's expedition, Forbes' expedition, we see the whole side of Washington. Is that a correct assumption or is that a limited view? Oh, no, no, it's, it's, it's a, I think the, the evidence is quite ample from the writing at the time. Uh, Washington thought that uh, why build another road across Pennsylvania? We've already got the Braddock Road, let's just reuse it. Also, of course, he had Virginia, or rather the company interests in mind, Ohio Company and others. Uh, Forbes disagreed for a number of reasons, uh, and, and some of them were diplomatic, but also, uh, you know, his plan to build a series of forts on the way to uh, ultimately the site of Fort Pitt to secure the, a new wagon road, a new route directly across the colony of Pennsylvania. Uh, so there's much going on, but you're right. Washington didn't favor that route. And, and it's also easy to forget he was ill uh, uh, in the early part of the campaign. He joined it fairly late. Uh, uh, was ill during the Braddock campaign. That's, uh, uh, so you have to give him credit where credit is due. Uh, but his, his role in the Forbes campaign is certainly uh, significant and a learning, another learning experience for him. Yeah, I always say if you're looking for a true North American hero, I have to give it to Brigadier General John Forbes just because of that fact. He had a great working relationship with his second in command, Colonel Henry Bouquet, and they were almost uh, one planned from the rear while the other one executed from the front, but you had the trust between the both. The line of communications between those two, as well as the different roads and fortifications. I love the Forbes campaign because you learn a lot more about the Cumberland County, especially with Carlisle, Shippensburg, uh, 
uh, Fort Loudon, seeing some of the officers that participated in that. And of course, Edwin Shippen III, who basically financed that campaign. Um, and then you see the end result of that campaign, as Dr. Uh, Boulder Powell mentioned, with um, Fort Duquesne basically falling after it exploded in November. So definitely an interesting, um, at least uh, a time period. And, and you can kind of start seeing a little bit of where England is going to start basically slowly but surely kind of ousting the French out of North America from that point. I'd like to pick up that thread with Henri Bouquet. Uh, excellent point. He and Forbes worked extremely well together. You know, Bouquet, of course, was a Swiss officer, a quote-unquote mercenary, who was critical of the success of the campaign. Uh, and this would be a good opportunity for all of us, a reminder that the Bouquet papers urge all of us watching this to go back to that source. Uh, primary sources, six volumes published by the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission over a period of years. There's the raw material. I never get bored going through them. You always find new things. Uh, the second volume is the one that focuses on the Forbes campaign uh, and in great detail. And it's just a wonderful primary source that no real study of that campaign can be done without referring to. So to our listeners, if someone's looking for a great uh, book to be written, then you heard it here from Dr. Powell. Go to the Bouquet uh, papers and write the Forbes expedition. So um, here we are. We're giving people ideas um, as well. So um, for now, um, the Forbes expedition, Bouquet. Um, so we got Washington. We got Western um, PA. Um, where, what happens with the uh, the Princeton War? I mean, does Washington go home? What? <laughs> well, uh, we don't hear about Washington too much. I mean. We have a comment, a question, I'm sorry, that uh, didn't Washington have a conflict with a gentleman named Dagworthy who was in the regular army? Um, Washington just take his ball and go home? Well, uh, the, Washington's last uh, camp, major campaign in the French and Indian War would be the Forbes expedition. When the expedition is over, in fact, near the end of that expedition, he comes, as he said himself much later, closer to being killed than at any time in his life. We call it the friendly fire incident at Fort Ligonier uh, in the fall of 1758, when he literally, two militia units go out ostensibly to drive uh, French forces away that aren't really there. Uh, and he has to walk between opposing fires, pushing muskets up in order to stop them from shooting at each other. He nearly died then as he nearly died on several occasions. Uh, for those that believe in the providential view of history, Washington escaped death many times. But the bigger the question you've asked is what happens next? Washington returns to Virginia. He's colonel of the Virginia militia. They have a huge area to patrol along the Virginia frontier, uh, ultimately returns home. Uh, and uh, he fades out of the picture of the larger story of the conflict, which continues, of course, both in uh, the upper country, of course, in upper New York state and New England. Uh, until its conclusion in 1763 with a treaty signed in Paris. So there are going to be significant actions, in fact, involving men that gained fame on the frontier, uh, the capture of Fort Niagara in 1759, uh, and of course the capture of Ticonderoga, uh, which uh, Billy Kurt certainly could talk about, uh, and, and other campaigns as well. So uh, this. The three years from 50, well, five years, really, from 1753 to 1758 are when Washington 
is most closely involved in events, but then more or less fades in a sense out of the picture until later. And before you leave Washington, I'd like to just say, um, spent a few years as a park ranger at his birthplace. And the one question we always got was like, when did Washington make that switch? Everyone always said, when did he become British to rebel sympathizer? We always want to make that one, one defining moment. And I think if you guys five years or six years, you look at from uh, the right uh, leading, going up to Prescott, Fort LeBeau, Fort Necessity, Seeing the um, not being able to follow his half brothers into getting a British commission like Lawrence did, but also seeing um, the good and bad from Braddock and Forbes, and then eventually, um, I mean, a pivot. I mean, in 1759, he marries Martha Washington. It kind of sets him up. I mean, in that way, but he does make trips to what see um, is it William Shirley in, in uh, New York um, to try to argue for commissions and everything. So you see, there's a certain be the, the breadcrumbs that the uh, paving stones on the road to revolution. But it was one of those tough questions we got as rangers, when did Washington become a revolutionary? Well, let, let, let's, let's take a look at something that uh, uh, Stephen Brumwell, the name I think you know well, the uh, British historian who lives in Amsterdam has written a wonderful book that addresses that subject, uh, you know, George Washington, gentleman warrior. And uh, I think it's quite clear that Washington desperately wanted a commission in the British army. We know that had Braddock lived, because they became very close in the short time they were together. Almost certainly Washington would have obtained, obtained that commission. What, how, how might that have changed history? Uh, we know that Franklin remained a royalist until 1774. He, er, Fra a, a little secret about Franklin is that he wanted the pens stripped of their interest in Pennsylvania, wanted to make Pennsylvania a royal colony with himself as royal governor. And his brother, his son, I should say, became, as you know, royal governor of, of New Jersey. Uh, so I think it's easy for us to forget that Washington and others were first and foremost uh, loyal to the empire until any number of different things began to change their point of view as intended. Those are, I mean, yeah, great point. It's, I mean, even Franklin in Fitzgerald gets bombarded by what a uh, commission in the House of, uh, or the in Parliament. Um, yes, it's helpful. House. I mean, it, uh, he's um there. But it is, um, I mean, the question we always, because most times, unfortunately, history classes in high school, whatever, it's French and Indian War, Boston Tea Party, Boston, or Boston Massacre, Boston Tea Party, and then now we're elected in Concord. But um, tonight's a French and Indian War discussion, so we're staying there. Um, and on, on the road to revolution might be another one in the future. So, um, French and Indian, why do we call it the French and Indian War? Oh, this is a question. And why does the rest of the world, why, where did the term French and Indian War come from, I guess, is one of the big 50,000 foot type questions asked. Well, it was always, even the contemporary during the revolution, it was always referred to as the French War rather than the French and Indian War. I'm not quite sure where did the, the Indian, where did that get added to it? I suspect in the 19th century, uh, uh, and perhaps by Parkman, mm -hmm. you're right, contemporaries didn't call it that. They would have, as you said, called it the French War uh, that is in the colonies. <laughs> well, it's, once again, we have the 19th century just making up everything about the French and Indian War that we know today. So um, there it is. Um, but um, all right, so as we transition into the last 10, 15 minutes of this, um, we usually try to ask three questions, one very silly, uh, if you are drinking something, what are you drinking? Uh, two, is if um, 
what's one place you had to sum it up to go visit in Western PA or um, one cool little story. And three, since we did talk a lot about books, um, I had a great chance to take a seminar with uh, Fred Anderson, who wrote The Crucible of War um, and um, at the University of Miami, which I thought was going to be great. I thought I was going to go to the Coral Gables and have a class with Dr. Anderson. I forgot to read that it was being held at the University of Miami of Ohio. So a little bit different, um, Miami of Ohio than Miami, Florida. But that'll be the last question I asked is if someone had to pick up one book, is it David Preston's? Um, and we and disclaimer, nope, we get no kickback on Emerging Web War for mentioning David Preston as much as we did. Just letting that know if anybody's asking if we're getting money for promoting his book. So um, well, I'll, I'll start with that. Of course, I had the opportunity to read it in draft. Uh, Dave and I have been colleagues for a long time, and he is on the board of the Braddock Road Preservation Association, which I've been privileged to be the president of for many years. So I, I saw in the raw how those sources came together. And I, uh, you know, in 2005, when we did the 250th anniversary of Braddock's defeat or Bojo's victory, there were still sources out there that we were not aware of that helped change our understanding of those events uh, on July 9th and before. Uh, so in that sense, I have to betray a certain personal bias, but quite frankly, knowing the literature of Braddock's campaign, there is nothing better right now that has done a better job of pulling together all the known primary sources that are available to us and done it in a very readable way, uh, an excellent way. Uh, and frankly, Dave is just a nice guy. So he's very down to earth. And he's walked the road. I should point out that there's one other gentleman behind Dave who sadly is no longer with us. Uh, that's the late Norman Baker, decorated Marine Corps veteran of World War II, who we called the Johnny Appleseed of the Braddock Road. He walked every bit of it multiple times and wrote a very fine book that provides maps so that you can retrace the Braddock Road from Alexandria, Virginia all the way to the banks of the mine uh, to the extent that it still exists. So um, before we cut on, we got a great comment on the thing, John. They said, you've got an eight-year-old and a two-year-old watching and learning because of you. So um, just uh, throwing it out there. So that might be the youngest watcher we've ever had on one of these Red War revelries. So thanks, John, for bringing a two-year-old. So the future of French and Indian War historians is right there. So, Absolutely. Um, David Preston, good. I, I always do these Red War revelries and I put up an Amazon page on what to, what to buy. So now I guess I can add another book uh, to that list of growing um, in my shopping cart. So thanks Dr. Powell for adding to that, uh, that COVID reading list, I guess you could say. So uh, who wants to take it from there? I'll throw out a, a historic site that's a personal favorite of mine because I worked there. Uh, it was my very first park and that's Bushy Run Battlefield, which is a little later. Uh, it's technically not a French and Indian War site. It's part of Pontiac's War, which is an offshoot of the French and Indian War when uh, after Britain and France declare peace, uh, the Native American groups from the, uh, the Great Lakes and Western Pennsylvania and Ohio country uh, become dissatisfied with British policies and rebel and attack the British forts that the British had just taken over from the French. And uh, anyway, uh, one of really the only historic sites preserved from that in that conflict is Bushy Run Battlefield uh, near Greensburg, Pennsylvania, 
and uh, Henry Bouquet is the British commander there. And it, it's an absolutely beautiful tactical maneuver that he pulls off of fooling the Indians into making an assault that he's able to, to crush from a flank attack. And it's just a, a great tactical study. And it's a great site that preserves that part of the history in Western Pennsylvania. Um, they have a great website if you're not able to go in person, but check out Bushy Run Battlefield. And um, I think for me in Western Pennsylvania, by far the best French and Indian War site to visit is Jumonville Glen. I don't, there's not many sites in this country where you literally feel like you step back in time. I mean, it's just, it's so remote. It's life around you. It just, it's like, it doesn't exist anymore. It's almost like you're standing there uh, right with George Washington as he's about to uh, ignite, you know, the first world war. Um, and you can almost just like he did, you could uh, almost hear the, the bullets uh, whizzing past you, bullets whisper. And uh, believe me, there's something charming in the sound. <laughs> Someone is going to put that quote on today. So uh, you beat me to it, Billy, before John steps in. I did have a chance um, on one of the trips from Wheeling Jesuit University in undergrad back to Baltimore. Took over to Route 40 uh, instead of uh, the, the interstates um, and got distracted by, of course, the brown sign. But I remember parking. The gate was closed with the mine built and I remember parking out, kind of walking back into it. And Billy is exactly right. Um, that's one of the most important things is, is to get to these uh, sites. Um, and um, we'll circle back to that. But John, uh, pass it on to you. Well, I was going to say, um, as from a learning point, come to Shippensburg and visit me, number one. But no, number two, Fort uh, Ligonier itself. Um, there's a lot of great material culture up there, not only on a brief, uh, the reproduction fort and with all the artillery and different um, vehicles that would have went with these campaigns, but their museum was wonderfully laid out as far as like um, the archaeological evidence that they found where the fort is. Plus, they have artifacts from the Seven Years' War itself. I never knew what elephant armor was until I stepped foot in that or um, in that museum. But just the fortification itself and seeing how massive it is, and it's only part of the original fort, absolutely amazing. And I would say anybody, you know, once COVID-19 is gone and you're allowed to go visit, definitely hit that place up as well, as well as uh, Jumaville Glen, because that is also an amazing place. Well, let me let me second that. Of course, I'm biased once again, because I've been associated with the fort for nearly 50 years. Uh, fort Ligonier is the finest reconstruction, reconstruction of a French Indian fort on this continent, other than Louisburg, and that's a whole different ball of wax. But the collection is world-class. You cannot study the French Indian War without going via Fort Ligonier and its collections. Just the paintings in the gallery alone. They have, for example, The Death of Wolfe by Edmund Penny, not the famous Benjamin West, but a lesser known painting of The Death of Wolfe. They have the coronation portraits of George III and Charlotte, only two of 25 known to exist. They have the painting of Lord Ligonier by Sir Joshua Reynolds, not a copy that the Tate has in London. I could go on and on. You mentioned quartermaster Sir John St. Clair, they have his portrait by David Ramsey, the original. Uh, it, it's an incredible resource. I couldn't endorse what you just said more than to suggest that. To get a real sense of the landscape, however, Billy, I'm, I'm with you at Jumonville Glen. Yes, that it, it seems as if it's unchanged. And uh, so I, I'm, I'm torn myself between which sites I you know, want to go to at any given time. <laughs> I think we all are. 
And uh, that's, I mean, too many sites, not enough time, but I do like to ask uh, Dr. Town, Product Road Association, um, what is it? What do you guys, uh, what do you do? Well, I mean, give you a little shout out to what you've been uh, so important in preserving. Um, I saw the sign behind it. Um, there it is. Uh, free publicity there, but um, yeah, Product Road Association. I mean, is it, are there local chapters? What is well, we're, uh, we're based at Jumonville, uh, actually at the Jumonville Camp and Conference Center, which is part of a larger property. We were founded in 1989, uh, originally as the Jumonville Preservation Association. We have a board of directors that are all volunteer. We do an annual seminar the first weekend in November. Uh, we've been doing it now for 31 years. So we have the oldest continuous French Indian War seminar in the United States, 31 years and counting. Uh, right. And our website, gives us an overview. It's just uh, www.braddockroadpa.org. So we run an annual event. We also try to place markers on the original Braddock Road, which deviates a lot from Route 40, uh, and to advocate for preservation and collaboration with the other French and War sites, especially in Western Pennsylvania, the ones that uh, are very close to us. Awesome. So uh, as we wrap up here at the 8 o'clock hour, any final thoughts on Western PA, the French and Indian War? This is the chance to give the French and Indian War just a little more love before we kick back into the, the Red War next week. So any closing thoughts, gentlemen? Well, in COVID-19, support those sites, whether it's Bushy Run, Ligonier, uh, Braddock Battlefield History Center in, in Braddock. Uh, they need help right now to visit at, at, at all museums do. So that's my first plug. And secondly, in a lighter note, because you mentioned funnier things, one of the magnets they sell at Fort Ligonier is Sir John St. Clair's famous quote in the Forbes papers, this is a most diabolical work and whiskey must be had. <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, that might be the, the signing off moment. I don't know if anyone, <laughs> anyone want to top that? No, I think, uh, think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I thank uh, Dr. Powell, John Miller, uh, uh, Bart Dunkerley, and Billy Griffith for joining us on the Emerging Red War Roundtable of Red War Reverie. Um, we will be hitting different topics. Next week, we're back in Yorktown. A few weeks, we are doing the War of 1812, so continue to check back. Uh, but thank you once again, gentlemen, for joining us uh, tonight. I hope you found it as fun and entertaining as I did. Um, I learned a lot, and I have a few more places to visit and books to read. Um, Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks guys.